there, there's four series of sevens through, uh, through Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3, we had the seven churches. You remember, he, really the book is written to those seven churches. Then we had this, the, uh, the seven seals. And it was broken up in, in this way. He, he showed us the six seals. And then there's an interlude. You like my stop sign? Yeah, there's, there's a stop sign, there's an interlude, and he explains something else that's going on. And then he gets to the seventh seal. And the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. Don't, don't think in terms of the seals leading to the trumpets, leading to the bowls. Because really, everything that happens down here is the seventh seal. When he breaks the seventh seal, those are the trumpets. And when they play the seventh trumpet, those are the bowls. See how they, like a telescope, it just kind of expands like that. But I think, and, and, and I don't have scripture to back this, this is just John, okay? I'm always careful when I tell you this, that this is just John. I think that the Lord knew that this book was too was so heavy, so difficult for us to hear, not to understand necessarily, but difficult for us to have to listen to the harsh judgment that he, when, when he had John write it, he did it in this structure on purpose. You get six seals, you take a break before you have to hear the seventh seal. The seals are the trumpets. So we hear six trumpets, and then we take a break before we hear the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is the seven bowls, and so he shows us six bowls, and then we take a break before we get to the last bowl. You see that structure throughout. I think it's because he knows we need a, we need a break to be able to deal with all this. Uh, <clears throat> When I say it's a break, I want to be real careful. And the, the word we use is interlude. I want to be real careful that I, I'm not implying that, that those, those passages are unimportant. They're, they're very important. But they do give us a chance to step out of the judgment description for a moment and see something else that's happening. Um, <clears throat> after the sixth seal, we stopped and we, we saw the martyrs who were praying. You remember? Uh, around chapter 6, uh, mid-6, maybe verses 8, 9, 10, something like that. Uh, so we, we, we paused for a little bit there. Now, through chapter 9, we've heard the, the six trumpets. Well, we're going to hear the seventh but there's a long interlude. We're going to take an interlude for, I think, like three chapters. Uh, well, two, two chapters before we get to that seventh trumpet. So what we're going to do tonight is look at this interlude between the, the sixth and the seventh trumpets. 
We find it in chapter 10. And it is another vision. <clears throat> uh, he says in chapter 10, verse 1, then I saw, oh, uh, Todd, I don't think I ever started the recording thing. Did you? Okay. Then I'll edit this part out where I said I don't think we ever started it. <laughs> then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. A mighty angel comes down from heaven in John's vision. And um, I, think it become, I think it would be too easy for us to, um, to get sidetracked on the details of the description. By that I mean don't, don't worry too much about the fact that it says he's surrounded by a cloud. If he's coming down from heaven, that, that's just kind of be, to be expected. The cloud is significant through scripture. You remember God appeared in the cloud as he led the people through um, the wilderness. In Isaiah 6, he appears as smoke in the, um, in the temple. Um, a cloud covers Mount Sinai when we get the Ten Commandments. So yes, God does appear in clouds. He, he uses clouds. Um, in this case, I really think it's just saying the angel is coming down from from the heavens. Um, and if that is true, then it says there's a rainbow around his head. Wouldn't that be expected? If he's coming down and there are clouds, he has that Shekinah glory. He's shining. And so his light is going to refract, reflect and refract the, uh, the, the clouds around him. So it's going to form a rainbow. Uh, now, anytime you have these kind of images, there's going, to be there's going to be varied interpretations. And a lot of folks interpret the, this image differently. But I, I take just almost a very practical approach. I think it's an angel coming down. So there are clouds because he's coming down. He has this light. You see his face uh, was like the sun. That's that Shekinah glory that, that shines. And because of that light, there's a rainbow effect around him. His legs like pillars of fire is a reference to the fact that he is, um, uh, he is representing God. Uh, in the wilderness again, uh, I told you that God led the people as a cloud, which he did. But what about at night? They couldn't see the cloud at night. What did he do? Fire. And so I, I, think, I think the reference is uh, uh, a reference to judgment because the, the legs are the power uh, and they're fire, bringing fire down. But I also think it's a reminder that this is a representative. An angel is a messenger. This is a representative of God. So we see the cloud and the fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. That rhymed, but I don't think it was intended. A little scroll in his hand, right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. Right foot on the sea, left foot on the, the land. 
He came from the sky, from the air. Now he has a right foot on sea and a right and left foot on land. He's got creation covered, doesn't he? He's, he came from the air. He's got water covered. He's got land covered. I think that, 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 that chapter 10 uh, has as a major theme the reminder that God is the creator, that he's in charge of all creation. And so his messenger, representing, representing the creator, comes from the air and touches land and sea all at once, saying, I have the authority over all of creation. So the judgments that I'm bringing, I have the authority to bring. The message that I'm about to give you, I have the authority to give you. Why? Because I represent the creator of all that exists. He has this little scroll open in his hand. Some, some suggest that that is the scroll back in uh, the early chapters that was sealed with the six seals. I really don't think it is because it says a little scroll. I think it's signifying that this is something different. I think this is, this is the next chapter, if you will. Uh, this, is, this really is symbolic. It, it does, as you'll see, we really don't learn a whole lot more from this scroll. I think it is symbolic of God's word. It is, uh, it is a way for John to receive the word of God. And I'll show you that in a minute. Let me unfold that before we, we wrestle with it too much. So he had a little scroll open in his hand, his right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. The angel speaks with such authority that his voice resonates and it, and it, it affects John with the effect of a lion's roar. Lion is the king of beasts. And here is the king of creation, a representative of the king of creation who is speaking. And so there is the power in his voice. So much power that the seven thunders sounded. Remember, seven is the number of completion. And I think this is just talking about uh, that, there was a, that he was surrounded by the sound of thunders. But... It's not just the rolling thunder that you and I hear. He actually heard a message from those powerful voices or those powerful thunders. You see, it says, when the, I'm in verse 4 now. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So the angel appears. He has the scroll. And he called out with a loud voice. We don't know what he said, but he said something. Perhaps he was summoning the thunderous voices. We don't know what he said, but he said something with great authority, and that caused the thunders to speak. And John heard what they said, 
And he was about to write down what they said. But a voice from heaven, maybe the angel, but the reason, but I think it, I think it's a separate voice this, because it didn't say the angel said, and we've already <laughs> been introduced to the angel. It says a voice from heaven. Maybe this is God. Maybe this is the Son of God, but there is a voice from heaven. And it says, seal up. In other words, keep secret. Don't write down what you just heard the thunders reveal to you. And because of that, it does us no good to try to figure out what the thunders were saying. Because God just told us through this text, he doesn't want us to know. So don't waste any time and don't listen to those who do waste time trying to figure out what the thunders are talking about. Because God says it's not for us to know. He told John not to write it down. Verse 5 then, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. The angel raised his right hand and swore. I don't know if they really do this in courtrooms, but on TV they always have you put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so it right. Uh, when we swear people into office, they put their left hand on the Bible, right, raise your right hand. And that's what he's doing. It's a very similar tradition. Maybe it could be our tradition came from this ancient tradition. But he raises his right hand to swear, to make a promise. The promise, the, the, uh, the, the shorthand version of the promise is that there will be no more delay. You see that at the end of the verse. But by whom does he swear? You know, the, the old thing we just talked about in court, um, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Swearing by God that I will do my best with his help. And here he is swearing by God that what he's about to say is true. But I love how he describes God. He says, he says that uh, the angel uh, raised his right hand and swore by him who lives, present tense, who lives forever and ever. Present tense is important. When God revealed his name to Moses, what name did he tell Moses? I am. The present tense. It's a, it's a verb form that means to be, but it's present tense. I am. And if we look back at Moses' day, we would say that Moses was, God is. Even in Moses' day, we would say Moses was, past tense. God is, because he's always present tense. Today he is. Tomorrow he is. He's always present tense because he knows no time. He's not bound by time. 
Time is a construct that we need as humans to make this life make sense. God is above and beyond all of that. He, he, he is not bound by time. So he is. Therefore, the present tense is important. And so he, he says, um, the one who lives forever and ever. But then notice, he's the one who created heaven. The angel came from the skies. Remember, heaven does not always mean the, the final resting place for believers. We use the term this way as well. It can mean the sky. Paul talked about going to the, the, the third heaven. And we've talked about this before. You remember there are kind of, if you want to think of it in these terms, there are kind of levels of heaven. As we use that word, the heavens, we can see the heavens during the day, we can see that, at, we call it the sky. It's, where the, it's the area where the birds fly. We can see the heavens. At night, we can see even farther because there we see the heavens and there we see the heavens that contain the stars and the moon. And then there is that third heaven that cannot be seen by day or by night. It can only be seen by faith. That is the dwelling place of God. In this case, I think this is talking about creation. This is the, the heavens that we can see during the day because it says that he is the one uh, swore by him who, who created heaven and what is in it, the, the, the clouds, the birds, the earth and what is in it, the animals, the people, the plants, and the sea and what is in it, the fish, the, the plant life, the coral, all of that. And this is the promise. This is what is being sworn, that there would be no more delay. Now, don't lose your place here, but turn back a couple of pages to chapter 6 at verse 10. Chapter 6 at verse 10. This is, you remember I told you that, that, that the, uh, uh, we had looked at the uh, martyrs who, had, uh, who, who were before the throne, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, Lord? And so chapter 10, where we, where we were just looking, chapter 10, verse 6, is the answer to chapter 6, verse 10. That's coincidence. Don't make a big deal about the fact that the numbers are the same. But chapter 10, verse 6, is the answer to chapter 6, verse 10. The martyrs say, how long? And 10, 6, the angel says, it won't be long now. There will be no more delay. Verse 7 then, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. In the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God. Now, mystery means something that has yet to be revealed. God told the prophets, and we could go through a list of 
half a dozen, seven, eight prophets of the Old Testament who talked about the future time, the end of times. God revealed to them what that was going to look like, how it was going to unfold. He is now revealing it to John. And what we find out is that it is not going to be long at all until that seventh trumpet blows. And when the seventh trumpet blows, all of the mysteries will be fulfilled. Everything will be complete. In other words, the end of time is that close. That seventh trumpet is, is a description of the seven bowls. The seven bowls wind up being the harshest judgment. Many of us believe that that's the last three and a half years of the seven. If the seven is a um, specified period of time, if that's a literal period of time, seven years of tribulation, then the last half is going to be the worst half, and that's going to be experienced on the seventh trumpet as the six bowls of wrath are poured out on mankind. So, feel this for just a moment. Is this good news or bad news? The martyrs are saying, how long until we finally see justice? And the angel says, Now's the time. No more delay. The seventh trumpet's about to blow and things are fixing to happen. And so there is something inside of us that says, yes, victory for God's people and for God's plan. Yes. And then at the same moment, we realize, how is that going to happen? It's going to happen with the worst kind of judgment that we've, we could even imagine. And so are we supposed to be happy or sad? Look at what happens next. Hang on, hang on to that dichotomy, that, that you're feeling both things at once. Hang on to that. Okay? Um, verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again. See, I think this is the, this is the separate voice. And, and you'll see in this verse why it, I don't think it's the angel. It's got to be a different voice. Maybe the voice of God. The voice that I heard from the heaven, from heaven, spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. Okay? See, he, it's two, di two different beings. He says, Go to the angel. So this voice says, Go to the angel, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. You remember two feelings? Is this good news or is this bad news? We're happy that, that it's almost done, that, that victory will be won and, and God's people will be avenged. But we're terribly, we're, we're almost devastated that it's going to be such a terrible judgment. It's sweet and sour. It tastes in our mouths like sweet honey. But it causes, it causes a stomach to be bitter. Verse 10, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. 
It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must go again, prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. There is, uh, there is a precedent to this strange image of eating God's word. Now, there are references through scripture that talk about things in those terms, like, uh, like it's the, the bread of life, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that springs forth from the mouth of God. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a reference. Uh, there's a reference to the the, the Bible as manna. Um, so th the idea is there of eating, but perhaps nowhere is it more clear than Ezekiel chapter three. I'm going to run over there to Ezekiel chapter three real quick because there is a precedent to this idea of eating the word. In uh, Ezekiel 3, beginning at verse 1, he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And then we fast forward to uh, uh, verse 10 of that same Ezekiel 3 at verse 10. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. That is the, I think, the explanation of what it means to eat the scroll. It means to receive it. You know, you can, you can hear somebody talk about it, and you, you can kind of even study it if you want to. You can sit through a lot of sermons and Sunday school classes. And so you can hear and read God's Word, but it has no effect on you until you actually receive it into yourself. The image of eating it is a physical way of describing a spiritual reality that I receive God's word into my, my being, into my heart. I, I want it to be a part of my life, of who I am. Um, and it is when I do that, it tastes sweet like honey. Why? Because God wanted me to receive this. God is speaking to me. I'm, I'm hearing from my creator, from my master, my king, my Lord, my God. And that's a good thing. But sometimes the things that he has to say to us can be difficult. So as sweet as honey, receiving it. But once it becomes a part of me, I have to wrestle with the judgment and the difficult challenges that that word now places on my heart and on my life. So Ezekiel and then John received it. It was like honey. 
Ezekiel is then told to go and share it with Israel. John, by contrast, is told and go and share it with many people, many nations, anyone who will listen. Is then God's word sweet like honey or is it something that turns our stomach bitter and sour? It is both to the believer and it is both to the nations. He's going to go and tell this to the nations, to people. There will be some who receive it and it'll be sweet as honey to them. There will be some who hate to hear the judgment that's coming. And to them, those very same words will, will make it a bitter experience. Paul said something similar would happen when he was writing in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 at verse 15. He was talking about us believers and the influence that we have on the people around us. He said, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I have a brother who is, um, I think it's safe to say he's agnostic, uh, probably even atheist. And uh, he doesn't go to church, but he has come for family events or whatever. He has come to church and heard me preach, I think three times. And just coincidentally, two of those three times, I happened to preach the same sermon. And the sermon I was preaching was, what do you smell like? Based on this text, you have the aroma of Christ. If you're a believer, you have the aroma of Christ. Now, that aroma is going to affect people differently. You see, to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, verse 16, to one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You carry with you the aroma of Christ. For some, they're going to smell life on you, and they're going to want a part of that life. For others, they're going to smell death because you represent the truth. The truth is there is only one way to God. You must repent and receive Christ as your personal Savior, and that's it. People who are unwilling to do that, that aroma, is, is, it smells like death. So it's one gospel, but it has two effects. And I think that's what uh, John was experiencing. Take the gospel, take, the, take God's word. It's going to be sweet at first, and then it's going to turn your, your tummy bitter. Because it's sweet to receive his word, it's bitter to have to tell people about the coming judgment. And once John experienced both sides of that, then he's ready to go and tell all the nations and all the peoples, knowing that they will hear both sides. Some will hear the honey and want to be a part, and some will just hear the bitter judgment.
Some it'll be aroma of life, some the aroma of death. So that is, that is uh, Revelation chapter 10. The promise is no more delay. We're ready for the seventh trumpet. Chapter 11, we, uh, we are introduced to a couple of witnesses that change, uh, uh, change things pretty dramatically. And then that seventh trumpet blows. In, aren't the witnesses in 11? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so we're introduced to a couple of witnesses, and then the seventh trumpet blows. When the seventh trumpet blows, I think that we enter into the last half of tribulation, the worst time. The seven bowls are poured out, and um, we see the same structure there. We'll see six bowls. Then we'll be able to stop for a little bit. Interlude that explains uh, what's going on in the spirit realm. That's gonna, that's really kind of interesting because that's where the dragon comes in and all that, all that stuff in the interlude there. Then the seventh bowl, and then new heaven, new earth, everything re uh, rebuilt to His glory. <clears throat>